This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men in Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's unbelievable! Welcome to a Men in Blazers pod special. Our guest today is a writer with a cult following. His 1993 debut novel, Train Spotting, announced his arrival as a literary voice that was gritty, indelible, darkly comic, and distinctly Scottish in equal measure. His new novel, A Decent Ride, is out right now. You can get it on Amazon or at any good bookstore. We welcome to the pod one of the only men in the world who's held a season ticket for West Ham and Hibernian at the same time, the one and only Mr. Irvin Welsh. Hello there. Oh, welcome, Irvin. You are a cult hero to so many of our listeners, thanks to your inimitable style of writing, a style which one of my favourite characters of yours, Bruce Robertson from Filth, would call the spice of life. That raw style, which was recently praised by one British newspaper as, quote, a marvel for its inveterate swearing and porny contortions. Is that a fair characterisation, Irvin? Yeah, I mean, you kind of... I mean, I'm not a, a big person for reviews because uh, I'm always working on something and I think that you, you kind of get immersed in the thing that you're working on so you don't really stop to see the reaction from the, the thing that you've just had out. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's like... Uh, it's, it's nice to kind of um, keep getting kind of good receptions, basically, for the stuff that uh, you bring out. Your breakthrough novel, Train Spotting, which you've proclaimed to be the most shoplifted book of all time, became, it became a cultural touchstone, really, that shaped Americans' understanding of Britain in the 1990s alongside possibly Britpop. Can you describe the different reactions you've received to the book from Americans and, and Britons? Um, I think the reactions are, are pretty kind of similar all over the world, really. I mean, I think that... Um, what happened uh, with with train spotting was that uh, it's depicting a world in transition. What we're doing is we're you know we're still in this transition now. We're we're kind of transitioning to a world without work basically, and it's a thing that you know that, that, that it's very hard for kind of politicians of whatever kind of um, whether the left or right to, to actually come out and and embrace that you know. But it's been the reality for many communities right across Britain, right across America right across the industrial world for such a long time now. And it's going to continue to become a reality for more people. It's going to become a reality for more middle-class people, kind of, and even more quite wealthy middle-class people as they, they watch their assets being frittered away, uh, being converted into debt to pay for an education for their kids that's going to do them no, the kids no good because there's going to be no jobs. It's, this is, so whenever you have a kind of big transition in a society like that, you have an epidemic. And the epidemic is, you, you know, in this case, is drugs. Drugs win by default when there's nothing else to take their place. Kind of train spotting sort of tapped into that. And I think that's, a, that's, that's a, the kind of global resonance that it has. It's kind of tapped into that kind of um, dark and deep and inconvenient truth, really. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting to hear you talk about a time of transition because your new novel, A Decent Ride, well, it's, I mean, on one hand, a rollicking brazen tale that's been loved and despised by critics in equal measure. The lead character, quintessential Irvin Welsh, a sex-obsessed, drug-peddling taxi driver, Terry Juice Lawson, 
Vice summed up the storyline as one that included necrophilia, murder by bodily fluids, and chapters narrated by Terry's penis. But I I might be bonkers, Irvin. I read the book as much as a journey into a new and fast-changing Scotland as anything. Yeah, I mean, I've you know been living in the states for about six years now, and before that was in Ireland for five, uh, and then before that London. So I've not really lived in Scotland consistently, even though I've got a, a a place there still, and I go back over for kind of two or three months in the year. And but you're not there all the time, and you go back into it, you see it changing very rapidly. I mean, everywhere is changing rapidly now. It's a kind of whole feature of uh, what we've been talking about, you know. It's noticeable to me how quickly Scotland is changing and a lot of the older institutions haven't really kept up with that change. And I wanted to kind of get to grips with it. And I thought that Terry, who had kind of featured in Glue before a previous book, he would be the ideal guy to be a kind of tour guide, basically, because all these political changes kind of, and he would be just more interested in kind of getting laid. He wouldn't really give a a toss about them, you know, uh, (laughs) know, one way or the other. He wouldn't wouldn't really care about uh, whether Scotland was independent or whether Scotland was part of the union. He would just be interested, you know, as long as he had his shagger opportunities, everything would be fine, you know. And I wanted to put him into a position whereby that was taken away from him. You know, and you'd have to address the kind of bigger things. It's fascinating to hear you talk about Scotland. I mean, you grew up in a place, Edinburgh, that reminds me a lot of Liverpool, where I came of age. I mean, the culture there, it's not necessarily a literary one, but there's an unbelievable rich storytelling tradition in both places. Everyone loves to talk and make meaning by telling stories. Most of them are hilarious. Occasionally, some are mildly true. There's the oral tradition and there's the musical tradition. You, you wrote Train Spotting while you were holding down a job in the housing department of Edinburgh County Council in the late 1980s. I read you talk about your own writing methodology and you said you got into it via music. You'd actually generate ideas for songs that would then turn into stories. It was late 80s Britain. I mean, I was almost into ballads. I mean, I like I like balladeers. I like you know from like Iggy Pop, Lou Reed, kind of you know Shane McGowan, Nick Cave, people like that who can actually tell a story in a song. You know, and uh, that's what I, I kind of wanted to do. I wanted to sort of write songs that weren't just they were actually saying something basically, and that's what I wanted to do. You know, and I realised that um, I was writing quite nice sort of lyrics, but I wasn't writing any good music. You know, the music wasn't strong <laughs> enough to, to carry, it just wasn't strong enough to carry the, the lyrics. So basically I became a, a story writer through doing that, you know, but that get, but it was the music that was a way in to, for me to actually start to write uh, stuff down in a bit of paper, basically. Do you still do that? Yeah, I mean, I still mess around. I've still got, kind of, I mean, I still make up tunes and sort of, and, and write kind of lyrics and songs and stuff like that. I was going to say it's more of a hobby than anything now, but uh, I suppose writing is, you know, even even writing for TV and writing for Hollywood and all that, which I do now, it's, I still think of that as a hobby as well. You know, I still think of, I've been very lucky that I've been able to make one of my hobbies pay, basically, you know. So, uh, and that's that's the ultimate kind of, I think, success in life, really. Like, you know, if you can make a hobby pay, puts you in a good, you know, it's, it's a great thing to do. You know, something you would do anyway uh, through your passion for it to actually get paid for it is, uh, is fabulous. I know that feeling well. A world without work full of pony contortions. You're like Moses taking me to the promised land. That's what they say about Moses. So, you know, keep taking the tablets. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's a train spot in two in production based on your novel Porno. 
The, the train spotting film is classic. I mean, it's sharpened the careers of Oscar winner to be Danny Boyle. There's Ewan McGregor, Johnny Lee Miller, Ewan Bremer, Robert Carlyle. They're all back. How, how does it feel for you from a conveyor belt of life perspective to reconnect to the whole project and all the same personnel, but 20 years older? It's kind of bizarre because, um, you know, we've all kind of met, you know, and kept in touch over the years and all that and sort of bumped into each other and kind of, you know, hung out, but kind of on an individual basis, you know, and uh, to have everybody back in the same room is pretty bizarre. I was I was back just before Christmas, and um, I ran into Danny Boyle and uh, John Hodge coming out of the brothel uh, around the corner from me. There's a, there's a, you know, and Edinburgh has all these saunas, which are kind of licensed brothels, basically, to keep uh, prostitution off the street during, you know, from the HIV kind of era. And um, I was all, I'd just come back from Peru, and I was all disorientated and jet lagged, and um, I saw Danny and John coming out the the local sauna. I said, like, you know, what the f are you guys doing here? And Danny said, well, you know, well, we're, we're actually here to to shoot you a movie. Do you remember? You know, to shoot the film of your book. You know, but we're just, I've got yeah. I obviously remember all that because I've been talking about it for two years. But um, but it was nice seeing an Oscar winner, an Oscar nominee, walking out of Edinburgh brothel in broad daylight. I love any story that begins with that line. I want to segue to the football. Did you play football growing up? Were you a bit of a Billy Bremner or were you more like Spud and Goat? I was like a kind of, you know, a cross between Jack Charlton and Spud would be, would, would be, <laughs> would be my, if you want, if you want to, if you want to stay in Leeds, like, you know, I was a kind of gangly, kind of useless, kind of um, streak of piss, basically. I wasn't a good footballer. And it's funny because the only two things I've been really passionate about, you know, well, the two things I've been most passionate about in life, music and football, obsessed with them both and terrible at them both, you know. So <laughs> normally, when, normally when you're passionate about something, you're good, you know, you're interested in it, so you develop skills. But I just was never a, a great footballer because as a kid, you know, you, had, you, you saw these fantastic players. Every, every club had a, a really tricky winger. And I was a big, tall, gangly sort of kid who was all legs, but I wanted to be... I wanted. I didn't want to be an ugly central defender. I wanted to be a kind of goal scorer. I wanted to be a, a kind of tricky winger and all that. And uh, I remember the, our, our local team in the scheme. My uncle was the manager, so he kept on embarrassing me by making me the star striker in the team. And I was <laughs> rubbish. And everybody hated me, of course, like you know, because they thought you're only you're only involved in this picked because of nepotism and you know basically it was true you know so um but i kept you know i kept playing occasion you know over the years and all that and sort of getting you know, on pub teams and stuff like that and and I, I actually got better when i accepted that i was just a a kind of an ugly central defender rather than a sort of kind of a tricky winger or sort of um or classy midfield playmaker you know or, or goal scoring striker you know so i accepted my limitations and um but I was kind of adequate when I accepted that kind of um, that uh, that more modest role for myself. It's it's like talking to a young Stevie Naismith. You and he had very similar, eerily similar early years by the sound of things. But you're a lifelong supporter of Hibernian, the mighty Hibs, currently in the second tier of Scottish football. You now live in Chicago. How do you follow the Hibs? I mean, I get the, the Hibs TV and I can watch the home games. Uh, they're actually doing all right now. We're in a we're in a kind of we're in the League Cup final, and um, the team you know there's a bit more optimism around there. They're playing some nice football, so I can watch Hibs. You know, and I can and, I, and again I can I can watch Hibs. I can watch West Ham because uh, the Premiership games are 
are um, are all on here. You know, you can see every Premiership game live in America, which is quite incredible, really. Um, so yeah, so I can follow, I can follow him, so I can follow West Ham. Uh, I can't. I can see some Ajax games occasionally. They have Dutch because I lived in Amsterdam and, I, and I've kind of, I, I watched Ajax when I lived in Amsterdam, and I can I can't really see Bohemians games. Bohemians of Dublin. I used to when I lived in Dublin. I used to go to Bose games, and uh, unfortunately I can't see Bose games. But um, it's you know I, I, between Hibs and West Ham being on TV and between the you know the American teams that I, I follow over here like. Uh, like the White Sox during the baseball season, the, the Blackhawks ice hockey team, uh, principally, and also Green Bay Packers uh, football. I, I'm pretty busy on the sort of football front, you know, and I can I can watch, I can see all the Spanish games. I can see you know, Barcelona. I can see the German games and all that. I don't so, know, I don't know how you ever get any books written. It's an incredible an either. incredible number of allegiances which you maintain. My wife came in the other day there and she, she says to me, uh, you know, she says, you know, she says, "Hey, what have you been doing, honey?" And I goes, uh, "I've just been watching football." Like, you know? <laughs> and uh, she goes, "You know, how the hell do you write all those books? I never see you write." And uh, I think it's true, you know, I don't seem to, I, I, I tend to carry stuff in my head a lot and then I just kind of, when I, when I do write, I write in bursts. You became a West Ham fan in the late 70s, you followed the punk scene down in London, you chose West Ham as your team. I mean, they were a very different West Ham than the one we know and love today. I mean, describe the club and the fan culture. When I went first went down to London, I was staying at uh, my Uncle Alex's place, and he'd kind of moved down to work on the railways. I used to go down there in the summer. Every, you know, his, his, because he was, uh, because they lived in Fulham originally, um, they started supporting Chelsea. They were all heart supporters, and they started to follow Chelsea. And I thought, well, Chelsea, you know, Chelsea hearts, so I'm going to support Hibs, and I'm going to support West Ham because it's East London, and Hibs is East Edinburgh and all that, and it's kind of the, 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 the kind of docks kind of thing and all that. So I got into that, but for some reason I had a picture when I was a kid, I had a picture of Johnny Aries, who was like uh, a ginger-headed West Ham squad player who never really got many games for them, but I had this <laughs> picture of him on a West Ham strip in the wall. So there was something weirdly ordained about it. And then when I got older and I moved to London, I had a girlfriend whose, whose brother was a, a fanatical West Ham fan and I started going along to games with his mates. And then I, I seemed to have met West Ham fans in London at strategic times in my life, so I've always been kind of propelled along there. Uh, and I just started to get a season ticket, you know, when I was living in London. And um, it's kind of, you know, big changes afoot for the club now. You know, when you look at when you look at the, you know, the move to Olympic Stadium, I think it's going to be massive, you know, and it's going to, I think it's going to elevate West Ham to one of the really biggest clubs in Europe. I mean, it's got the, I think you're going to see more signings of the, the, the Payet type quality come into the club because you've got all the, you've got London, you've got all the great, the, it's very close for continental players to, to get back and forward. You've got the great you know connections now with uh, the Olympic Stadium, all the, the infrastructure and transport. You know I think you'll get people will get in and they'll, they'll make a day of it. You know so I think West Ham will is they'll, they'll utilise their old fan base and I think they'll attract a lot of new supporters as well. I'm fascinated to hear you talk about that because West Ham. Seth Myers, who's a West Ham fan, he, he, he described being a West Ham fan on our show until recently. He said it was like working in a factory. You just kept clocking in and you did it because it was what you've always done but they have changed they've changed so you were cheering a Sam Allardyce team this time last year you were yes. you were, you were mid-table you reveled in being crap but now like you say they're a London team big big money any Premier League team has but players like Payet like Kriate, 
like to move to London. And right now, you've got Slavan Bilic. You're in sixth place. You're only six points off the top four. It's got its ups and downs. I mean, I know there's a lot of old school guys that, um, you know, that I've been going with over the years. And they're, they're kind of, you know, they're like East London born and bred, Essex born and bred and all that. They think, well, you know, we're going to lose part of that identity. We're going to, we're not going to become a, a kind of sort of, you know, a local club like a kind of, you know, an old school kind of iron workers, kind of industrial dockers kind of sort of club with that heritage now, you know. Uh, but and and in some ways they feel they feel a bit anxious about it, and I can understand that. But I think that um, they had a choice basically whether they could be Millwall or Arsenal West Ham, you know. And I think they've gone, they've gone on to that into that Chelsea Arsenal type of. Um, level now you know i think you know they'll, they'll stay at that level now i mean i love the old school west ham fans i mean we've we, we got to talk about the bubbles for one second because the bubbles that they pump out before the game it's one of the most amazing human transformations i've ever witnessed when the bubbles blow out over the crowd and the hardest men in london men who like begby in train spotting enjoy the taste of their own blood in their own mouths just momentarily <laughs> they're just momentarily yeah. turned into nostalgic like, softies you see some incredible sights here. You see guys that are kind of old school East End hard men with, with some bubbles kind of sort of, you know, <laughs> blowing them and all that. And, uh, you know, and it's like, it's it's, a, it's quite a beautiful thing, really, you know. And it's like, um, you know, I mean, I think that's a, that's a great thing about football. It kind of, you know, it does reduce us all to, you know, it's it keeps us all in that kind of childlike state, you know, and it does, it, it reduces us all back to that. You know, you hear, you hear, you kind of see kind of kind of hard men and Leith crying when people sing Sunshine and Leith and all that, and you see kind of sort of kind of hardies Londoners crying when they're when people start singing Bubbles. You know, it's just something that um, that kind of happens, and that sort of um, that collectiveness and being part of that kind of you know that that whole thing and that that, that tradition. I mean, and I'm kind of um, obviously I come into you know I come I come into Hibs as very much part of that community. I come into West Ham as kind of an outsider who's been who's been fortunate enough to be embraced by people sort of uh, over the years and, and and shown a lot of love by that community. So it kind of does. Um, it's, it's just, you know, it remains an emotional thing. And I hope that when West Ham move to the Olympic Stadium, they can carry at least some of that culture. And I'm sure they will. I'm sure they I mean, will. it is fascinating, Irvin. I mean, if you have ever been to Upton Park, the Berlin ground, West Ham's head, the stadium, it smells like an English football stadium should. It smells of spilt beer, urine, bad breath, greasy hot dogs. I mean, that is all going to change. They're going to move to a whole new corporate kind of setting what does it make you think you're cheering for football now it becomes about the people you go to the games with that's what it's always about even at, even at Hibs you know the stadiums change dramatically it's like you know it's, it's you know it's they're still on the same site basically but it's four new stands it's a new stadium and it has a whole a completely different feel now to the old Easter Road but the people that go are still the same and the people that go are kind of part of your kind of life, basically, you know, they're part of kind of, um, they've been through all the same ups and downs with you regarding football. So I think that's what it does. That's what it's about, really. To me, it's like um, clubs change, you know, stadiums change, owners change, but the supporters and the people you go with, they remain the same. Remainder of the schedule, favourable for West Ham. Five teams ahead of them. They've only got to play Leicester on the road. Arsenal, United, Spurs all have to come and play at West Ham. And you've already taken four out of six points off Manchester City. At the end of the season, 
In your mind, Irvin Welsh, where will West Ham finish? Be a profit for me. Well, I mean, I, I think um, West Ham will definitely snag a place in Europe. I mean, I don't think... Um, I think probably, if I'm being honest with it, too many draws, not enough... Um, not, not sneaking enough wins to to get a Champions League slot, even though it's very, very open now and anything can happen, as, as you say, you know, because it's, like, it's, it's been a very, very tight league this year. But I really think next year, West Ham, you know, they'll, they'll make a couple of big promenade signings uh, in order to... Um, in order to basically sell tickets for the Olympic Stadium, you know, so I think they have to to make um, a couple of big promenade signings, and I think they'll be very, very strong next year. I think they've they've elevated themselves as a club, and I would fancy uh, a really serious uh, assault on uh, a Champions League slot next year. Oh. But I think this year it could still it could still actually happen. It could still be a, it could, you know, it, they, they could put a run together and do it. I hope you're right. I'm an Evertonian and I've always felt a great empathy amongst the London clubs for West Ham. There's so much to admire about them. This season, Payet, Alex Song's crotch-hugging shorts. And I just love whenever Andy Carroll is actually fit enough to play and he heads the ball and you tweet, goal of a proper shagger. (laughs) Obviously, when I'm over in London, I try and get to West Ham games. and I was at the Liverpool game it was just great to see, you know, it's like because when they play, when you play against a, a club like Liverpool and you have all the, you know, the, the traditions, the, you know, the, from the, the, the recent traditions of Liverpool from the 80s onwards, and you, you kind of have that thing that uh, Liverpool are kind of bigger kind of sort of club than West Ham, they're sort of stronger, they're going to be, but that that's kind of all gone, that psychology, you know, where everybody had that kind of, you know, sort of um, thing on. Liverpool might like Stoke, ain't they? <laughs> What's all that about? Yeah. So there's that. There's that swagger has kind of come into the, the the mentality of the club and the supporters, like you know. Goal of a proper shagger. It's one of my favourite phrases well, in football. Was, that's all was, yours. Well, that's all you can say about it. Like you know. <sighs> apart from that, you know, apart from the coke dealer's ponytail, um, it was still the goal of a proper shagger. You live in exile now, self-imposed exile. You've got homes. In Chicago, which you describe as New York without the arseholes and Miami. I've got to say, America, when I think of you in this country, I think of the American tourists being mugged in the London Road Tavern in train spotting. You seem to be the kind of person that would loathe Americans, to be honest. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm kind of married to one, so I, I kind of I, I can't sort of, uh, uh, I can't too much. I mean, I think that um, one of the things that you see that is that over in the UK, we get a very kind of jaundiced view of America and Americans. I mean, there's a thing about um, in in Britain they kind of um, they kind of laugh at America and they laugh at all the dumb kind of parts of it. You know, the the evangelicals and the sort of um, and all the kind of you know the right wing politicians and the crazy kind of sort of reality game show type guys like Trump and all that. Uh, but they don't realise that you know it's like I think because people don't realise that that isn't really what America's like. You know, it's like people don't realise that Hollywood, you know, and the movies aren't really what America's like, you know. And, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff that most Americans that you meet, particularly, you know, if you spend a lot of time in cities like myself, you know, and uh, I spend a lot of time in basically in Chicago, New York and L.A. and Miami, you don't really recognise all these kind of archetypes and stereotypes and all that. It's like going to, you know, it's like going to 
a pub in Manchester or, or Newcastle or Liverpool and expecting everybody to speak with an upper class English BBC accent. You know, it doesn't. It just it just doesn't happen that way. So America is very different place. And when you when you come across here and uh, you know you start to live here, you kind of see that, that people have you know very very different qualities and very very different attitudes to the one that they kind of get prescribed basically by the media in Britain. I, I just want to tag on to your answer for British listeners. Irvin is right. Nothing is like the movies in America, apart from Miami Vice. Miami is just like Miami Vice. I don't <laughs> like... <laughs> Miami's an exception. Miami's kind of crazy. And that's, I mean, it's funny because you think LA would be the more, more like a representation of how it is in the movies. But Miami is very, Miami is very kind of, um, it's very kind of, kind of noirish and sort of, uh, and swampy and interesting and full of kind of, um, all kind of weird transplanted people from not just from the United States but from all the Americas. It's just a, an unbelievably fun place. You, you've lived here in the United States for the last six years, a time in which football's profile has exploded in this country. Have you experienced that astonishing transition? I kind of follow the San Jose Earthquakes and my kind of MLS team because um, I actually saw them play against Hibs one time at Easter Road and George Best played for both teams. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he played. Yeah, yeah, I had a few drinks at half time and came out for the wrong side and all that. No, he, he, he switched. He, he switched uh, and he played for both the the Hibs and, <sighs> and Quakes, like you know. And also, uh, I lived in San Francisco for a year as well, so they were, you know, it was the local team there. I've got a policy that I never, um, I never support a team unless I live in the town of that team. You know, so always, always trying to, even though I'm a hip supporter, always take an interest in uh, a team in the city that I live in. You know, every town I've lived in, I've kind of sort of uh, taken an interest in one of the local teams. I wish I'd made a documentary about Irving Welsh living in Green Bay. Those years must have been fantastic. I, I'm going to... Oh, yeah, I mean, no, no I mean, it, it's not a... It's not an exclusive thing. You know, I, I, followed the, I followed the Packers because my, my thing, you know, obviously they're green, they play in the same colours as Hibs. Uh, they're a fan-owned team, which is very rare. But they're also, they're, they're also named after industrial workers, kind of like British teams, you know, like the Packers. Uh, rather, I, I hate all these American clubs that are named after animals. I won't support any American franchise that's named after animals. So I don't support the Bulls or the Bears or, um, you know, uh, or uh, the Cubs. But I support, you know, I support the Sox and I support the Blackhawks. So I, I just don't take away the imagination that I've got of you living in Green Bay. It's a short story in the making. Green Bay would be brutal in the winter at this time of year. I mean, I think it would be a tough shift. Oh, I can imagine you with your shirt off, cheering on the lads. Yeah, cheering on the Packers. Like, question, come on, Aaron Rodgers. Question from a listener at Ron Hogan. Wanted to know, so many of your books are based on your own real-life experiences. Question is... What was Irvin Welsh doing when Archie Gemmell scored against Holland in the 1978 World Cup? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think um, I think I would would have been watching it in in a pub, uh, and I think probably in Scotland because I remember um, I remember the false sense of excitement because we, Scotland went three one up, and there was a chance that um, and I think it was Johnny Rep that scored the second goal for. You know, there was a chance that we would get through even after the Peru and Iran debacles uh, if we got another goal. But I think Holland, uh, you know, Holland scored again. Johnny Rep scored, so there was a, it was a, a brief kind of surge of absolute euphoria. Um, and I think it would be a pub. I think it would probably be uh, Jimmy O'Rourke 
uh, who used to play for Hibs, he had a pub uh, called Christophan Inn that we used to go to. So I think it would probably be Jimmy's pub. Two last questions for you, Irvin. What would you think the young, drinking, drugging Irving Welsh would think about the Irving Welsh of today if the two of you met? <coughs> oh, f- wanker would be the first thing that would come to mind. Like, you know, I mean, my younger self never had much tolerance for anybody that was, was older than them. So I don't think he would, you know, they would be massively impressed. Um, and I think probably my younger self was right in a lot of ways. Like, um, I don't think you should, I don't think you should really, it's not a good thing to listen to anybody. If, you, if you're young particularly, it's not a good thing to listen to anybody over 28. And what about vice versa, Irving? Oh, for a nightmare, like, you know, for f- sake, get these little bastards out my boozer. F- <laughs> <laughs> you have lived a life. 16 years of age, you charge down to live in London as punk broke. Then you move back to Scotland in time for rave to take hold. You've broken the grip of a heroin addiction. You've worked for the council. You've become a literary star. Irvin Welsh, what is the secret of life? Uh, oh, I don't think there is any secret. I mean, I think the I think um, the most important thing to do is to kind of try and do everything you do with real exuberance and enthusiasm and kind of vibe on it because you can't you, you can't really fake passion. You know, what I mean, it's like I, I kind of worked in crap jobs that I hated for you know for a bit, and I tried to pretend that my life was going okay, and it wasn't. You know, so you can't. You've got to you've got to find something that you're really passionate about, and you really care about. It doesn't matter if it, if it you know ideally it pays you millions. It doesn't matter if it pays you pennies or not at all. As long as you're you're really into it and you're vibing on it, then your life's you know. Otherwise, I think your life you, you're wasting a lot of life. You know, you're looking for. Um, you're looking for something to sort of uh, to 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 kind of complete you, and I think that um, the most important thing is like if if you're if you're lucky in art and you're lucky in love, then you've kind of I think that's you know that's just about half the battle, basically, <sighs> or maybe the whole battle. Lucky in art, lucky in love. Please God, one day, Irving Welsh, lucky in football. I wish you the best. Yeah, I mean that would help. That would help. I, I wish you the best for West Ham. I wish you the best for Hibs. I wish you the best for San Jose Earthquakes. Most of all, wish you the best for your new novel, A Decent Ride, which is out now. And Irving Welsh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Pleasure.